Hey Amazon selling enthusiast, it's Eric here. And if you're tired of the inventory management struggle, I've got a game changer for you. InventoryLab.com InventoryLab simplifies e-commerce. Inventory management integrates seamlessly with Amazon and even syncs effortlessly with QuickBooks for hassle-free accounting. Go to FoxCitiesMM.com IL now because your success deserves efficient inventory management. Happy selling. You're listening to Fox City's Murder and Mayhem, your bi-weekly dose of true crime history in a small rural community of Wisconsin. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Fox City's Murder and Mayhem. I'm Eric. I'm Gavin. And Gavin, we're back again. Yep. <laughs> kind of running a streak here on this podcast, so what do you got for us today? Well, today... uh I, I brought a couple options. Today we're going to do a, a Green Bay case. Well, but take I, her away. I've got a couple Green Bay ones. To, uh, this is this is the first that I'm aware of. First really Green Bay, Bay. story. True <laughs> Green Bay story. Yeah. This, in fact, this might be hard to beat. Really? Yeah. It, so it's going to be that good of a story? Is yeah. that what it, Look at that. He's setting it up right now as, yeah. as this one's epic. Yeah, because <laughs> it, it it features one of your favorite things. Oh, God. What is one of my favorite things? Police incompetence. <laughs> <laughs> that is possibly one of my favorite things. So. All right. Okay. Here we go. Christmas Eve, 1927. Okay. Okay. William Kennard was in his living room at 136 South Roosevelt Street in Green Bay. I don't really know Green Bay, but if you do. And this is two blocks from the old Packers Stadium. This is back when the Packers basically just played out of a high school. (laughs) He was opening his mail with one letter featuring a handwritten address, but no return address. And inside was a typed letter. Dear Mr. Kennard, this is not a joke. In the next seven days, New Year's Eve, you will deliver a sum of $1,000 to a location east of the city off of Highway 78. It will be marked with a wooden box placed on top of a fence post, which will have three white lights forming a triangle with a red light in the center. Place the money inside the box by 9 p.m. Failure to follow these instructions will result in you being shot. Please don't get the police involved. At least they said, please. Yes, yes. <laughs> Kennard did not know why he was a target, why why they sent him this letter. Uh, he was a superintendent at the Bay West Paper Company. He wasn't rich. He wasn't well-known in town. He's just some guy. So why would they pick him? He told his wife, and they decided they're not going to do anything about it. They're not going to pay the money, and they're not going to tell the police. <laughs> they're just going to go on with their day celebrating Christmas. This decision seemed to work for them. Days went by, nothing happened. New Year's came and went, nothing happened. Then, on January 7th, another letter arrived. Dear Mr. Kennard, It is a shame that you didn't comply with our first demand. We will give you one more chance before killing you. This time, you have only a few days to comply. The amount, $1,000, has not changed, and neither has the location. By Monday, January 9th at 9 p.m., Place the money in the lighted wooden box on top of a post east of here off of Highway 78. No police, no problems. Signed, the Triangle Club. All right. So now that we have a name for yeah. the for the group that is partaking in this. Yeah, this time they signed it. This time they signed it. So we know now it's the Triangle Club. <laughs> 
We don't know what the Triangle Club is. No. But we know it's a Triangle Club. Yeah. So this time, William was like, okay, I guess maybe I should do something. So he went to the police department and spoke with Detective Gus Deloy and his partner, Martin Burke. They had no idea what the Triangle Club was, but they suspected the blackmailers had the wrong target. Maybe they wanted William's brother, Arthur, who was a cashier at the Farmer's Exchange Bank. That would make more sense. Yeah. A plan was devised. The officers would ride with him to the drop spot, and William would throw a bag of dirty old newspapers in the box. A block up, one of the officers would get out and walk back to the drop in darkness to catch the blackmailers by surprise when they claimed the fake money. The plan was approved by Chief Thomas Haley. Information was supposed to be kept need to know, but at least one other officer overheard part of the plan and wanted the credit for such an arrest. Between the visit to the station and the time to launch the plan, multiple calls went to the Canard House. Each time they asked if they had the Canard House, and when told yes, they said, tap, 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 and then they hung up. (laughs) The police later said that maybe these three taps were a symbol meaning the three points of a triangle. How clever. Yes. (laughs) That evening... Kennard drove out to the spot with the police hiding in his back seat. North on Roosevelt, east on Walnut, north on Baird Street, east on Willow Street, into the town of Preble, and finally north on 78, until they saw the box across the street from Shorty Van Pee's soda parlor. Unknown to the detectives, another car was nearby in the dark. Ooh. Ooh. So they thought to leverage the dark as well as the police. Yeah. First, a detour. Officer Simon Delaney wanted to be one of the men who apprehended the blackmailers. Couldn't get a replacement to fill his spot on beat duty. He walked Main Street, checking to make sure businesses locked their doors. In an alley, he saw a figure looking in windows with a flashlight, but couldn't see who it was. Freeze, police, hands up. The man did as he was told, but insisted he was a police officer. I'm Officer James Geyer. Delaney didn't know the man, and he had no uniform on. Geyer said he was new to the force, and he wasn't even given a uniform yet. This sounded like baloney, so Delaney arrested the man, removed a gun from his belt, and the two walked to the city jail. Geyer was locked up, and Delaney returned to his office to write his report. Now we'll go back to our main story. Okay. It's come together later. Okay. The drop box was on a farm fence post with flashlights inside to light it up. The blackmailers were most likely at Shorty Van Pease because it would be easy to monitor the box from the tavern across the street. Kennard dropped off the fake money, pulled ahead, and led out Detective Deloy to walk back to the box. Unknown to Deloy, officers William Walters and Oren Wall were hiding in the brush waiting for the blackmailers. Walters and Wall did not know the full plan and did not expect Deloitte to be walking back towards them. Seeing him poorly in the darkness, Wall yelled, Halt! And Deloitte, not expecting anyone, took the two shadows to be the blackmailers and fired a shotgun past them as a warning shot. Now, of course, the officers did know that it was a detective firing on them, so they returned fire with their own shotguns, actually aiming for their target instead of aiming over him. Okay, you got to stop right there. Okay. How did the police end up having two people in the brush 
that the people that are running the investigation don't know about. Because the two people in the brush aren't supposed to be there. Okay, so this was this had goes back to this guy that wanted credit for the arrest. Yeah, this was this was nobody was supposed to know, but somebody in the office overheard the plan. They there must have been some talk in the office, and everybody kind of wanted in on this, thinking it was going to be like the capture of the year or something. Mm-hmm. So these guys were like, "Yeah, we're going to wait in the brush, and then when the blackmailers show up to grab the money, we'll get the blackmailers." Not knowing that the other guys were also kind of doing that. <laughs> Planning that as well. Yeah. All right. Deloy was hit several times and managed to work his way to a house and busted in through the front door. Wall and Walters ran in behind, telling the residents to hide, and they were eager to capture their criminal. In the light of the living room, they realized the man they had been repeatedly firing at was their superior officer. <laughs> Deloy was loaded into a car and driven to St. Mary's Hospital. The remaining officers checked Shorty Van P's tavern and found no one who really stood out. They then got in Kennard's car and returned to the police station. At the station, they told Captain Holtz what had happened. Night shift, including Delaney, the man who was walking the beat earlier, Mm -hmm. was sent out to find the blackmailers, while Burke was sent to the Deloy residence to tell his partner's family what had happened. Captain Holtz was left behind to oversee the jail. When he walked down there, he found Officer James Geyer in a cell. At this point, Captain Holtz realized the department had two cases of mistaken identity in the same night. Geyer was, of course, let out. Oddly, he quit the force that same year. <laughs> Detective Gus Deloy somehow survived. Over the next several days, he underwent several operations, and 177 pellets were removed from wow. his body. Yeah, that's rough. Yeah, that that's not cool. If you think that's a miracle, here's something even more miraculous. You ready for this? I'm ready. Wall and Walters, the two guys who shot him, were not fired, despite going on patrol without permission and attempting to murder a fellow <laughs> officer. The police chief and the mayor believed that losing them would only make things more chaotic for the department. Decided not to fire them. Did they get in any trouble for it? You know, like a leave of absence or something? If they did, it wasn't immediate because they were told to go out and try to find the blackmailers with everybody else. Wow. I I don't know what kind of a job you can go and shoot your own guy and that's that's okay. Apparently you can well, do that. Well, what's done is done. Let's get, out and get the bad guy. <laughs> yeah. Police put out a $100 reward for information leading to the arrest of the Triangle Club. No one claimed the reward, no blackmailers were arrested, and the letters stopped. Huh. So that's it? That's pretty much it. There's one little there's one little piece down here. That's pretty much the story. Do you think there was anything to this, or do you think this this letter was these letters were just a practical joke? Well, I don't think they were completely a practical joke because I mean they did actually have a box set up. True. So I mean they there was some thought put into it. They clearly didn't have any real intentions of killing anybody. Huh. I mean, the, the, the police did more damage to each other than the blackmailers <laughs> did to anybody. Wow. 
I don't know where to, I don't know what to even say to this story yeah. because this is incredible. And did you look into the possibility, like, did the triangle people ever strike again? No, they didn't. They, there's no, you could find nothing of the no. triangle. No, they never did. We don't, we don't know who they are and they never, they never, as far as we know, never wrote another letter. Wow. What's the last piece to it then? Well, the last little piece is that on top of all of this, some lawyers got really upset with the police department, not because they were shooting each other, <laughs> because they they were going out to do a stakeout in the town of Preble, and they said, hey, That's you're, you're, you're city cops, That's- you, you can't go out into, into Preble, that's like, that's the sheriff's territory, you're out of your jurisdiction. And they're like, you had arrested a guy, the guy could go free, like, <laughs> you, you don't have any authority to arrest him. And the mayor... The mayor backed up the police on this, and this was this was the mayor's argument. Actually, this is a pretty good argument. The mayor said, let's say there's a police officer standing on a corner, and then a block away, somebody is being murdered, but the next block over is outside city limits. You can't expect the police to just say, well, it's not my territory. I'm just going to stand here because nothing I can do about it. Right. You can also make the argument that this was a premeditated thing they were doing yeah and they should have known they were out of their jurisdiction and they should have had somebody there that was could properly do the investigation i don't think the lawyers were probably that upset about that they were outside of their jurisdiction it was had you caught these people we might not have been able to do anything with it because you were being stupid Right. right. Like you weren't doing what you were supposed to do. Right. Yeah. And, and I actually, yeah, in my notes, I wrote, I have, sometimes I write my little opinions on, on here. And I actually, very, very close to what you just said is, I feel like the proper thing to do here is like, I get why they would do it because threats came into Green Bay. That makes sense. But at least like call ahead to the sheriff and let him know what you're doing. And, and the only argument I could see to make on the Green Bay police's side of that is, is like you said, they were trying to keep this plan mm-hmm. hush hush on a need to know basis. Yeah, and now you're talking about bringing in another whole nother police right. department into the fold onto it, which I could see at the same time. You don't really have the right to arrest anybody, right? <laughs> you know, right. like I don't know the law well enough. I, I would assume that the Green Bay police could just hold them there, call in a sheriff, and then the sheriff could come and actually arrest them. And that's and that's exactly what the police argued too. They said if we caught somebody, and and he got an attorney, and the attorney said, "Hey, you guys can't legally arrest him," they'd be like, "Well, all we would have to do was call the sheriff, and the sheriff would show up and rearrest him." Yeah. So yeah, I don't know I mean, if that's how that would play out, but that was their argument exactly. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Not at all what I would have expected. No. How how did this story surface? I always like to hear the history of, of how you discover these things. Sure. There's a book. It's called something. I might have this title wrong, but it's like Title Town Cold Cases or something. I picked that one up. and uh, So there's going to be a couple that are coming out of there. This one was, I mean... Nobody died, so there's technically, you know, there's no murder. Um, but I felt there was some mayhem <laughs> because it's definitely there was some some chaotic uh, situation going on here. Yeah, and I I totally this is very worth a story worth telling because yeah. I mean it just kind of shows you how bad things can go sometimes. I guess. Yeah, it was. Uh, 
This was a very, very bad day for the Green Bay Police Department. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would love to, the meetings after this happened, I would have loved to, I'd love to see footage of them sitting down and talking and just being like, ah, so that didn't quite go the way we yeah. had intended. Yeah. And one thing that confused me is this is the 1920s. I have to assume Green Bay's police department is not super huge. How you would not know the new guy hired as well? Yeah, that's also very... It's weird that he's going around on patrol without a uniform. That's weird enough. Do you not meet every new cop who gets hired? Yeah, I mean, you got to figure five police officers maybe. Oh, I'm sure uh, it's more than five. Really? In 19... In the 20s? Yeah, it's Green Bay. Green Bay is a decent-sized town. It is now... What was the population in the 20s? I don't know. More than five <laughs> cops, though. If you say so. I, I, I question that. You bring up... And the other question is, is, okay, he's out of uniform. So he was actually patrolling? Yeah. The reason... I don't... Maybe I wasn't really clear about that. Part of what, like, a beat cop did back in those days is they'd walk around and they'd, like, tug on doors. Mm-hmm. And just make sure that everybody was keeping their doors locked, uh, businesses. The other guy sees him like in the alley doing this, and it looks like he's looking in to the what windows. places he could. Yeah, what places he can break into. Really, he was just going and checking doors. Yeah, but it's still also. Why do you have a cop that's out patrolling, out of uniform? It's probably that, not a good idea. Yeah, that that doesn't seem like. I mean, that just seems like making the cops' job that much harder because yeah. now they're going to get all sorts of calls. Like there's some weird guy pulling on doors everywhere. Yeah. Uh, is no no uniform, no badge, just some guy with a flashlight <laughs> and a gun pulling on doors. Yeah, which does not sound like a good thing. It no. does not sound like the Green Bay Police Department's new hire. No, no. <laughs> so. I mean, I think the, the other guy arresting him, I think he made the right move on that, even though, you know, it looked embarrassing. He made the right move. Yeah, I, I don't think you can fault him for his move at all. In yeah. fact, because had he not done that, it would have turned out to be the other way around. Yeah. And didn't you say, like, he actually was in the jail? I, I feel like this should have been sorted almost immediately once he brought <laughs> the guy back to the police department, right? Well, the, the way the story is written, he was in the jail for a couple hours before anybody bothered to check up on uh, him. So. I, wow. <laughs> Well, don't worry, people. I'm sure that the police, this would never happen today. They're much better organized than they were in the 20s. Let's go with that. I don't think it would happen (laughs) these days, but it's just, what a a time. (laughs) All right. Well, I mean, I don't know if I would put that on the epic episodes. As far as comic value goes, this one is pretty high up there, I'd say. Yeah. I think it's better than average. And and we had no deaths, so it's okay to kind of take it on a on a funny side. Well, it's a, it's 100 years it's ago. Old, yeah. So, <laughs> so I, mean, I mean no disrespect to the guy getting I mean getting 177 pallets that's that's, that's terrible. Scary. But it's a, it's 100 years ago, so I don't think he's going to be too upset about about joking a, a little bit. Right. And you know when you really think about it too. If they have to pull a hundred pellets out of you today, mm-hmm. that's probably going to suck. Oh yeah. Uh, can you imagine what it was like in the twenties if they had to pull all those pellets out of you? Yeah. I mean, they were probably just filleting them like a fish yeah. and just pulling stuff out. And wow. Yeah. But he recovered. Yeah. Amazing. In fact. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we can wrap this episode up. Unless you got anything else, Gavin. No, that's it. 
<laughs> he's just like he's like no i'm totally done no, no that's that's all i got this time all right well we will be back in two weeks with either a new episode or a fine fine rerun from our vault and thanks everybody for tuning in we'll see you on the next one all right thanks for tuning in to fox city's murder and mayhem join us in two weeks for another exciting episode of Murder and Mayhem.